0: evil. Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name's Roger. I'm one of the elders here at GPC and my thanks go to Matt for offering me the opportunity to speak to you this morning. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, as we open your word this morning and continue considering all that you've said and done, please help us to see you clearly, to understand fully who you are, to accept your words. And then, Lord, to do Your will in our lives. Amen. New Year has uh, has come and gone. Celebrations have been celebrated, fireworks have been fired, songs have been blared, and twenty three twenty twenty three is with us. So, how many of you made New Year's resolutions? Oh, hold on. I I thought it'd be. Uh, thank you. At least Tony made news New Year's. Thank you. I've, did, oh, and also, uh, Riley. Thanks so much. <laughs> Great. Making New resolutions is a, is, a, is a tradition. Okay. So those few of you who made them, how many of you have broken them already after a mere seven days? <laughs> One. No, Riley. You're doing well. Excellent. Okay. You realise that research shows that the average 50% of people who make resolutions break them before, eight, uh, before February the eighth. There you are. Just a bit of information for you to, to cheer you along. Okay. Uh, and I must admit that um, I've made many, many, many re- New Year's resolutions in my life, and, and sadly, uh, like, uh, like like Tony, I've broken most of them. But there's a question that's always intrigued me about New Year's resolutions, and that is, where the idea of coming them, making them, come from? Why do we make them? And probably more importantly, if Christians make New Year's resolutions, what should they be? So of course I turned to Google, uh, that oracle of all wisdom, and made the following discoveries. The first recorded New Year's resolutions were made by the Babylonians, some 4,000 years ago. They took the form of ceremonial pledges made publicly during the celebrations that marked the commencement of the Babylonian New Year, uh, which is actually the 21st of March. There were only two pledges made, and the whole community came together and made them. Uh, Those two pledges were allegiance to the king and that they would all repay any debts that they'd incurred in the past year. And I think that's a fairly good resolution to make, isn't it? You'll repay your debts. Hopefully you haven't incurred too many. The reason why they made these beliefs, these pledges, was in the belief that if they kept them, their gods would bless them with abundant crops and protection from their enemies during the year. So New Year resolutions were pagan in origin and they were made to try and ensure the person's future prosperity. And as I look around at the New Year's resolutions that I've been reading in social media, the majority of modern day ones are also pagan in origin and pretty much the same as those ones were. Because of this, the Church originally rejected celebrating New Year and they rejected the making of such pledges. In fact, the Christian Church didn't start incorporating New Year's Day into its worship calendar until 1580, when Pope Gregory established the 1st of January as New Year. He moved it back from the middle of March. So what were those first celebrations about? Well, the first recorded New Year's resolution we have dates back to 1671, when this lady, Anne Halkett, published her diaries. Uh, She was a Scottish lady and her New Year's resolutions were all based upon Biblical injunctions. So, for instance, the first one she wrote down was I will not offend against God's word during 1671. Now, that's a pretty impressive resolution, isn't it? I will not offend against God's word. We don't hear any more about New Year's resolutions until about 70 years later when John Wesley came along. He took a different approach. He introduced a New Year's Eve service into his churches. He called them a watch night service, and they were an alternative to his congregation going out and celebrating. He brought the people together, and they did two things. They sang and they prayed, of course, but they also made scripturally-based promises for the new year. And Wesley, in his nimble way, encouraged his congregation to make promises that would make them more effective in living God's way throughout the year. That to me sounds like a good New Year's resolution. Unfortunately, by the end of the 1700s, uh, the newspapers were satirising the idea of New Year's resolutions and particularly criticising Christians who made public New Year's resolutions and then failed to do them. Again, human nature struck. But a great idea to Wesley's had fallen into disrepute. And, uh, And his idea was a good one. If we're going to make New Year's resolutions, then I believe they should be ones that help us to be more effective in living God's way. How do we do that? Well, I think a good starting place is Christ's statement we find in John 15. 12. There Christ says, My commandment is this, to love one another just as I have loved you. And so, a New Year's resolution that may come from that would be something like this: During 2023, I will love others as God has loved me. Now that's a pretty uh, all-encompassing New Year's resolution, isn't it? What does it mean? It's a great resolution, but and one we should, could all aspire to. But but how could we do that? Well. Psychologists tell us that the most common reason why people fail to keep New Year's resolutions is they don't understand what they will need to do to keep the resolution. They don't know how to go about doing them. And so if we're going to put in practice and place a resolution such as that one, we need to know what it's going to look like in practice. So we need to ask a few questions. There are too to that uh, resolution. I will love others as God has loved me so... How is God, how has God loved us? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 verses 23 to 24. That one says 23 to 25, okay. There he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but they're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat accessible through faith. That's a passage I think we all know, especially the first first verse, 23. What it's saying is we've all failed to be the people that God wants us to be. We've all fallen short of what he wants, and hence we've broken our relationship with him. But despite that, he brought us back into relationship with himself through Jesus' death. That redeemed us. So you see, that's how God loved us. He loved us by taking action to repair the damage we'd done. An action that cost him dearly. You see, it cost Jesus his life. And it was an act of grace, motivated only by concern for us. We've done nothing to deserve that action. It was God's unmerited favour towards us. To use the theological term, it was in no way earned. It was in no way expected for us, in no way deserved. And we get access to a relationship with God only by faith. By having faith that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for us. So a step towards fulfilling our New Year resolution would be how do I respond? Well, in response to God's love, Oops, forgotten. I, I will grow my faith. And how would I do that? Well, again, Paul gives us the answer. We grow our faith, because faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So part of our implementation of that overarching New Year Resolution would be that we spend more time in the word of Christ. We do that by reading it, and studying it, and listening to be taught, by coming to church and learning and fellowship, by joining a Bible study group, many of which will all start again in about three weeks' time. And I encourage you to do so. Because that's a step towards showing God's love to the world. So then we need to go back that first to the second part, or actually the first part of that resolution. It says I would love others. And that sounds so simple, doesn't it? After all, we all know what love is, don't we? We all know how to love others, don't we? When we watch TV or listen to a song or we uh, scan our social media, we see that love is a major topic. And all we have to do is listen to those songs and watch TV and learn from them and we'll know how to love others, won't we? I see some people shaking their heads. Sadly, of course, that's not the case. The love we hear so much about in the media and in our reading and on Twitter or Instagram is just a parody of love. For you see, it's primarily self-centered and focused on emotion. Love is something that happens to us, not that we do ourselves. And it's confused with physical desire and pleasure. But God's love is not like that. God's love was an action that was costly and motivated by concern for us and was independent of anything we've done. And so, if we're going to have a New Year's resolution that we're going to love others in the way that God loved us, then we've got to think about taking actions that cost us. Actions that are motivated by concern for other other people and actions that are independent of what they can do for us. And Paul gives us a brilliant analysis of what other-centered love looks like in verses 9-21 to of Romans chapter 12, which Ray's just read for us. So we're going to spend a little time looking at what the ways God wants us to love others. What that would look like. Firstly, love must be sincere. Hate what's evil. Cling to what's good. Uh, Love doesn't be manipulative. And it doesn't deceive. It's truthful and honest. Sounds easy and it sounds obvious. But it's not. Many of you know that I'm a psychologist by profession. And when I counsel couples who are having trouble, it always amazes me at how often people who claim to love the other person in the partnership haven't been honest with them. I haven't let them know the truth about what they're doing or who they are. They've kept things secret. They've done things without letting them know. And they justify this deception on the basis that they don't want to hurt the person. But of course, as we all know, when love is not honest and it comes out they've been dishonest, the person's always hurt. And we see those same things occurring in interactions with our wider community groups. We're often insincere and dishonest in our actions. We're often dishonest and insincere in our interactions with friends and family. we sometimes make promises we don't keep. And we avoid bringing up difficult topics. We say things we don't mean. Acting out of love, as Paul says, is we're going to be sincere with people, which means our word is our bond. We do what we say and we say what we do. And what we say and what we do will be good things. We will hate what is evil. We won't do it. Secondly, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above ourselves. What it's saying is that love is other-focused, and it's respectful. Being devoted to one another in brotherly love and honouring one another simply means that we put the other person's needs first, just as we do in our families. Well, not in my family, but in God's perfect family. You see, I grew up in a family of four brothers. I was second eldest, and so I knew what it was like to suffer the effects of brotherly love. My older brother explained to me when I was about six years old, he took me aside and he said, listen, it's his birthright to make my life a misery. And therefore, I needed to understand that brotherly love meant that I submitted myself to doing what he told me to do and wanted me to do. So my initial understanding of brotherly love was quite flawed. and I used to read this verse as a kid. I used to go, ah, it made no sense to me. Brotherly love is not what I want to suffer. Um, But then... One day, when I was about 12 years old, I was attacked by the school bully on my way home. And I was really in trouble. The bully was bigger than me and stronger and faster. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, my brother came to my rescue. He drove off the bully, and as he drove him away, he yelled out to him, Leave my brother alone. No one bashes him but me. (laughs) Um, So that's what love is all about, you see. He put himself at risk to protect me, or his possession, I suppose. And so that day, I learned more about brotherly love. It actually means that despite the differences and despite the conflict we used to have, he would always have my back. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Christians are all one family. So what it means is that to show brotherly love, we're going to step out of our comfort zone despite the fact we have differences, despite the fact we are in conflict Sometimes we're going to step out of our conflict zone to meet their needs and protect them. Paul goes on with never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope and patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. So our love of others arises from our desire to reflect God's love to those around us. It's an act of service. An act of service to God. And such it should be energetic and enthusiastic and joyful and patient and persistent. Despite whatever difficulties and afflictions we're experiencing, our acts of love will be intention, intentional, covered in prayer and bring joy and hope. And they won't just be a flash in the pan, they'll continue for as long as we're able to serve the Lord. You see, unlike what the songs say, love is an action. And it's an action we don't switch on and off as the wind takes us. It's not just words. It takes commitment. Now, I know some of us are not action people. If I was to ask you to put your hand up if you're an action person, I'm positive there'd only one or two of us who would do so. And I'm one of those who's not an action person. I'm good at saying stuff, but not so good at doing it. Ros and I have celebrated 50th, our 50th wedding anniversary just a couple of weeks ago. And yet, just last week, after 50 years of serving her, I fell into the trap of saying, <laughs> Michelle's ahead of me, um, yes, I'll do that, as she asked me to do something, and then I did nothing. Fortunately, it was a patient in affliction, and she gently reminded me what she needed, what I needed to do, and so I got up and did what I needed to do. But I must admit, I didn't do it with enthusiasm and zeal. <laughs> And so as I was reading this, I'm going, "Ah, slack again. We can't say we love someone unless we're demonstrating with an enthusiasm and excitement the zeal in which we are doing this loving action. Then we have, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. It's here, one of the areas where our love for others hits the road, the rubber hits the road. God's love for us was costly and solely motivated by concern for us. And our response to that love needs also to be costly and selfless. The way we use the resources that God has given us demonstrates His love to those around us, both within the Christian community and those outside of it. And it's not just the physical resources we have that He's provided, it's our time and our energy. These two are resources that we need to use generously love others. It's not easy. For you see, we all have different resources. And so what's possible for one person not possible for another. Some of us have financial resources which we're able to support others financially with. We can use them in that way. Others have time or wisdom or a listening and compassionate ear. Others have homes that can be used to promote friendship and community and fellowship. What Paul is saying here is that loving others in the way God loved us means that we love intentionally and will use the resources we have, not just for our benefit, but also to serve others and promote their relationship with God. And then we have verses 14 to 15. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Really challenging stuff. Love is forgiving. Indeed, it's more than forgiving. It's healing as well. When we're persecuted, showing love means that we don't persecute those who persecute us. Rather, we bless them. And when someone's mourning, we stand beside them and share in their sorrow. If they're rejoicing... We will rejoice with them. In this way, we bring healing and hope to people. Again, it's a huge challenge. Loving this way makes us stand out from our community. For you see, our community is not into forgiveness. It's into revenge. Paul mentions the word curse there, do not curse. Well, our judicial system can be thought of as being a modern day equivalent of putting a curse on someone. Whenever anyone does anything that we find harms us in any way, our first recourse is to go to court. To take them to court, and that curses them. Australia is the second most litigious country in the world, following America. And this taking of people to court is indeed often more effective at harming both the plaintiff and the defendant than a curse could ever be. That's not what love looks like. Love looks like getting beside the person, and working with them. It doesn't demand a penalty. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to use the legal system if necessary. I'm just simply saying it shouldn't be used as a first recourse, nor as a way of getting even. The judicial system is there to enable us to get justice. But above all, the process of love says let's start by building relationship. And that's what Paul continues on with, in verses 15, 16 to 17. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. You see, love is humble. It's without conceit. If we love someone, we can never feel that we're better than they are. Why? Because we'll always recognise that we're only where we are because of God's goodness to us. It's another area where our love not only demonstrates God's love for us, but we demonstrate our difference from our community. It's natural for us to like to be with people like ourselves, and to choose not to be with people who are not like us. So this is an area we have to actively work with. We have to work to overcome our prejudices. Where there's love, there can be no prejudice. People who really love will never be constrained by boundaries. And then we have the second part of that passage. Love sets a good example. You see, people learn by what they see and will do what they see others doing. We Christians are judged by those around us every day. So if we practice prejudice, people will notice that. And they'll either condemn us for doing so or copy us and justify why they're practicing prejudice by pointing to us. And if we repay evil for evil, well people will notice that and will justify their doing of evil by again referring to actions. You may have been reading in the papers before Christmas, a whole stack of journalists, particularly The Guardian, and a number of media commentators were having a field day blasting Christian churches for hypocrisy. Why were they doing that? Well because they accused us for failing to protect children from sexual abuse and for harboring sexual abuses within congregations. and Why were they doing that? Because we've had yet another high-profile Christian church leader hauled before the courts for failing to do the right thing in regards to child protection. And so the name of God suffers, and the good reputation of our churches suffer. suffer. And people shake their heads in scathing condemnation of all that's Christian, because of the bad example of a few. This is so important. And again, setting a good example is hard, but we need to be intentional about it. We need to think about, what will people see if I do this? And we need to be responsible about it. When we fail, in setting a good example, we need to confess that failure and take responsibility for it, to own it. Acting in love means that not only must the right thing be done, but it must be seen to be done. And then Paul brings his Romans to a passage to an end. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will keep burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, love makes peace, as far as it's possible. That phrase, as far as it's possible and dependent upon you, recognises that no matter how much we try, some of those we come in contact with will not be willing to come into a peaceful relationship with us. It's up to us to try, however. And it must be recognised that we're not responsible for the other person's actions. Peace always requires commitment from both sides. And we're not to take, uh, get upset about this or try to avenge ourselves. But the goal is to establish quality relationship. And Paul adds further explanation of why we shouldn't take revenge. And that is because we understand that God's in control. He will see that justice is done. That's tremendously comforting. Revenge is not up to us. We should take a step back and not get caught up in the emotional trauma of trying to get revenge. I love that little passage about um heating coals on people's heads. Um, I've often thought that was just quite backhanded, you know, do these good things and the poor guy will be hurt even more. But that's not what Paul's talking about there. What he's saying there is that if we if we do good to other people they will be overcome with the guilt of understanding that they've done the wrong thing and they will change their mind and repent of what they're doing. So you see, seeking revenge escalates evil. And we become at risk of doing evil ourselves. Loving those who do you evil de-escalates evil and gives it no foot in our lives. In that way it overcomes evil. So then we had some examples from Paul of what it means to love, of how we could put that New Year's resolution to love others in the way that God loves us, into practice. So, a series of uh, actions or resolutions that come from Romans 12. Well, the first one is, as I've said, i love others as God has loved me. In Romans 12 we see there are eight steps that we can we have to consider about. The first is that we're going to build our faith through Bible reading and fellowship and involvement with other Christians in the church. The second is that we'll be intentional about my relationships. I'll be intentional about being sincere and honest and respectful in all I do with other people. The third one is to practice meeting other people's needs. So we're going to take action for other people's good. Look for them. See how we can do that. The fourth one, become more selfless about forgiving become less conceited, less, more, less concerned about what I'm happening to me, and more concerned about what's happening to others. We'll work as setting a Christian example, because by doing so, we reflect God to those people around us correctly. We'll actively seek peace, and then two more personal ones. We'll rest secure because God is in control. We know that God's in control, and no uh, matter what happens to us, he has us in His hands, and we will trust Him that justice will be done. A great New Year's resolution and effective steps, but again, overwhelmingly difficult to do. So what I would suggest is that myself as well, just choose one of those to operate on and work on in the next period of time. They're powerful and effective resolutions, and. Uh, if we put just one of them into practice over 2023, then we'll be showing God's love to those around us in a way that can't be ignored. We'll be showing God's love to those around us as an appropriate reflection of how God loved us. What a challenge for 2023. What a challenge for the rest of our lives. Let's not make it a New Year's resolution. Let's make it a whole of life resolution. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Please grow our faith in you. Motivate us through your Holy Spirit to love others in ways that reflect your love for us. Enable us to be sincere and honest and respectful in all our personal relationships. Help us to be more selfless and forgiving when we are wronged. Help us to be more caring for the welfare of others above ourselves. And Lord, strengthen us to be better witnesses for you, so others may be challenged by our loving, and that they will then choose to come into relationship with you, through faith in Jesus. Amen.